Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, for historian Peniel Joseph, the moment Barack Obama was elected president marked the beginning of what he calls America's third reconstruction, a period of racial progress marked by Black Lives Matter protests and the social justice movements they inspired. But the third reconstruction, like the 19th and 20th century versions before it, has also been marked by backlash and racist violence. We'll talk to Joseph about what the Third Reconstruction is telling us about America's struggles for racial justice. He joins us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. America has gone through two periods of Reconstruction, according to historians, one in the 19th century following the Civil War the other in the 20th century with the civil rights movement. Historian Peniel Joseph says we're living through a third Reconstruction that began with the election of President Barack Obama. It's been a long time coming, but tonight, because of what we did on this day, in this election, at this defining moment, change has come to America. We're joined now by Peniel Joseph, whose new book is called The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. Welcome to Forum, Professor Joseph. Thank you for having me, Mina. So, Peniel, I wonder if you can start by explaining what Reconstruction means as a general concept. Uh, In particular, I was really struck by your description that it's a blues-inflected tone poem about the perils and possibilities of black humanity? Well, historically, Reconstruction has meant both the literal reconstruction of a society that was torn apart by civil war in the 19th century. So we have places like Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, or ports of Georgia that are burned down, uh, bloody battlefields in Antietam and Vicksburg, Mississippi, and other places, Brownsville, Texas. Uh, but there's also a metaphor when we think about Reconstruction, because it's really the reimagining of American democracy in an expansive way. So even though the book's subtitle is about um, racial justice, Reconstruction is always about democracy. But the beating heart of American democracy at its best is a struggle for racial justice and 
Black citizenship and dignity that really reverberates to all groups of people, um, both people of color, but also uh, white people as well. So you say that we're now in the midst of a third reconstruction. And just to delve more deeply into the events of this one. First, can you tell us why the Third Reconstruction, in your view, started with President Obama's election? Well, I think that's a watershed period in American history. And in a way, I think it follows the two earlier periods of Reconstruction in the sense that I look at the 13th Amendment and the ratification of the 13th Amendment uh, in December of 1865 as really... um, a thunderclap moment in American history. Uh, I look at the Brown deci- decision in on May 17, 1954, um, as another one of those moments, because in a, in a certain way, what Brown does uh, by saying that separate but equal is unconstitutional is really um, strike a huge, huge uh, chord for a reconstructionist rather than redemptionist narrative of American history in the body politic. Hmm. And Obama's victory in November of 2008, the reason that is so important, in a lot of ways, that victory tied those two periods of Reconstruction together um, in an uncomfortable way, I would argue. Because the first period, a loss-caused narrative that absolutely celebrates white supremacy wins what I call the narrative wars between Reconstructionists and Redemptionists. Reconstructionists are those who are supporters of multiracial democracy, and Redemptionists are advocates of white supremacy. So the lost cause, which really transforms America's built environment, both in the North, the South, the West Coast, with Confederate flags and monuments to white supremacists traitors of American democracy, that becomes so embedded in American history and culture that, as I show in the book, John F. Kennedy, when he was at Harvard University, he imbibed the ideology of the lost cause. He -hmm. believed the South was right and that people like Thaddeus Stevens, who is the Pennsylvania congressman, radical Republican, who was chair of the House Ways Means Committee during the Civil War and Reconstruction, were villains. And it's only after the Kennedy administration tries to desegregate the University of Mississippi and Kennedy is forced to deal with white supremacist governors during the second Reconstruction that he tells Bobby Kennedy, his attorney general, I'm beginning to believe that Thaddeus Stevens was right. Thaddeus Stevens was an advocate of abolition democracy and citizenship and dignity for black people and all people. So Obama's election in 2008 puts those two different narratives together in a very uncomfortable way. Because on the one hand, you've got the lost cause narrative that says that multiracial democracy was a mistake, that says the Klan were heroes. And we can see this in pop culture in the 1905 novel, The Klansman by Thomas Dixon, We can see it in the 1915 movie Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith that was shown at the White House. Woodrow Wilson, the president of the United States, says that it's history writ in lightning. This is one of the most racist films in American history with white actors in blackface trying to rape white women being saved by the Ku Klux Klan. This is the president sanctioning this. 
and the 1939 film Gone with the Wind. So by the time Obama's elected, the second Reconstruction's narrative of civil rights and Black citizenship and dignity as a political and moral good has become mainstreamed. And that's how Obama could be elected. And so when we think about Obama's election, it puts these warring ideals together in one narrative of American exceptionalism that Obama himself articulates expertly first in 2004 at the Democratic National Convention as a 42-year-old black state senator who's trying to run for the U.S. Senate. And he does a 19-minute speech that catapults him to not just the U.S. Senate, but to the presidency. And then during his campaign, but as he was going to find out, and the nation was going to find out between 2009 and 2017, those ideas are really incompatible, reconstructionist and redemptionist sentiments. I was going to ask you if you think that's why you say this uncomfortable tying together, that's why Obama's ability to basically execute his vision became deeply limited and opposed, and he he dealt with a lot of forces, countervailing forces. Well, he dealt with the forces of redemptionism, not just on the ground through the Tea Party, but also through the GOP, the Republican Party, but also through the Supreme Court. So in a lot of ways, when we look at June 11th, 1963, all the way to June 25th, 2013, we see this 50-year imperfect racial justice consensus from John F. Kennedy's publicly televised address to the nation in support of civil rights and black citizenship and dignity, all the way to the Shelby v. Holder decision where um, a redemptionist-backed Supreme Court 5-4 withdraws the Voting Rights Act from really being enforced in the United States. And so we've been living in this post-consensus period since then. And it's really, um, I would argue, the Black Lives Matter insurgency um, and all that it wrought that really put that into full view of both Obama and the nation. And by 2020, no one could turn their eyes away from that reality. In the full view of Obama? What do you mean by that? Well, I think... When we think about President Obama, even when he meets with the Black Lives Matter activists at the White House in December of 2014, he's telling them to go it slow. He's telling them that um, the United States is a big country and change happens incrementally, which is really paradoxical advice because he had written in Dreams from My Father and the Audacity of Hope his huge admiration for John Lewis, a congressman from Atlanta who was the former chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and one of the leaders of the civil rights struggles of the 1960s, how much courage Lewis had. And Lewis was the person who advocated this idea of good trouble to save American democracy in the 1960s. Um, But when when Obama faced that challenge in real time from BLM activists, he wasn't really on the right side. He Mm. was telling them that they needed to take it slow and events are going to catapult Obama into the right, into doing at least some of the right things. By 2015, he visits a federal prison. Uh, He says before the NAACP speech, 
He's the first president to use the term mass incarceration, first president to visit a federal prison. And really by 2020, um, at the the televised Democratic National Convention that's on Zoom because of the pandemic, he says that democracy is under existential threat. This is something that he wasn't willing to acknowledge when he met Black Lives Matter activists in 2014. (laughs) Can I ask you what President Obama's election, his campaign and election meant to you personally, just because you were so immersed in it, you were covering it for the PBS NewsHour and so on? Oh, I was I was um, very, very excited about Obama um, as a as more than just a candidate, but as somebody who could push towards a reimagining of American democracy in a way that was going to be substantive, but also was going to be palatable to um, the white majority. So in a way, Obama seemed as if he could put it all together um, in ways that he could be really similar to what Ronald Reagan and, and Eisenhower represented for the, for the right or the center, but for progressives. And you said white people began to treat you differently during his campaign and election. Oh, yes. It's, it's interesting because now we're going on 14 years from that period, and it seems like a lifetime ago. But I think you'd have to have lived through that um, period, Amina, and I know you did, did. um, to to feel how different things were, like the energy and the excitement. As a historian, I had written about the Black Power period. I had written about, you know, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, but obviously I had not lived through that time, those, those times. I was born in 1972. And um, by the time Obama did his speech at the Democratic National Convention, I was uh, 34, or excuse me, 31 when he did that speech. Very, very exciting. But by the time he was running for president, it was completely transformational, just the way in which my work as a black scholar was valued and just my personhood was valued. Obama (laughs) made black people especially those of us that think with a certain kind of access and privilege, seen in amplified ways for the first time. We'll have more with Peniel Joseph after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow, how the busy beaver could save California. Some environmentalists see the semi-aquatic mammal as instrumental in mitigating future flooding and drought. We'll find out why. And if you have your own thoughts on that, you can share them ahead of the show at 415-553-3300 by leaving 
us a voicemail. This hour, we are talking with historian and author Peniel Joseph, professor of history and founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the University of Texas at Austin. And we're talking about why Peniel Joseph sees us as in a third reconstruction that began with the election of President Barack Obama, the period of racial progress and backlash. And we want to hear from you, listeners. Well, first, what do you see as the impact of the U.S. electing President Obama, electing its first black president? Do you think we're in a third reconstruction? Or if you just have questions for Peniel Joseph, you can email us, forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. This listener writes, My history might be a little shaky, but it feels like times of great change are often followed by backlash. First, Reconstruction um, presages the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. Second, Reconstruction leads to white flight to the suburbs. Third, Reconstruction... Is that fascism? I do want to ask you, Peniel Joseph, what you make of the election of Donald Trump, how you interpret it. Well, I think that was incredibly disappointing. Um, On some levels, we can say it's not surprising, but I think those of us who were hopeful that um, the Obama coalition could remain intact to defeat an obvious uh, candidate of, of redemption like Trump, uh, were sorely disappointed. Um, Now, that being said, I think when we think about the Trump and the rise of MAGA, we also have to talk about the the corollary rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes very important because in a way, this vision of backlash, this time backlash is, there's a depth and breadth to backlash that's very similar to what we saw in the first Reconstruction. Um, But we also have a movement, a corresponding um, analogous movement for racial justice, economic justice, citizenship and dignity that has been really um, expansive. Uh, It hasn't won everything it's tried to get. Uh, There's federal legislation like George Floyd Justice and Policing Act or For the People Act, John R. Lewis Act, But the very fact that you were able to get President Biden, uh, really a redemptionist turned reconstructionist uh, in office, Kamala Harris, the work of Stacey Abrams to get Ossoff and Warnock, the only reason why um, the country had a rescue plan and infrastructure and the Inflation Reduction Act and now uh, loan forgiveness is because of these reconstructionist sentiments and these reconstructionist supporters of multiracial democracy. So you could see the impact in that sense. Um, And at times, local municipalities thinking about reallocating police budgets and reimagining policing, even as there's been a huge backlash against uh, the term defunding the police. But there has been um, tangible progress that would not have been made if not for um, reconstructing Reconstructionist supporters and organizing. It's really important to you that we not lose sight of that, isn't it, in this time? The the things that you're saying in terms of where you see progress. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, hope is absolutely a discipline. I, I believe uh, the, the the activist Marion Caba, who's a prison abolitionist activist, has used that phrase, and I think it's a discipline based on action. 
Um, W.E.B. Du Bois talked about abolition democracy. You know, I look at Ida B. Wells and Angela Davis in this book, um, Alicia Garza, Tamika Mallory, Stacey Abrams, so many different um, Black activists, but specifically Black women and Black feminists, uh, and at times queer activists as well. Uh, and I think it's important for us to see the progress, even in the notion that all Black lives matter and the way in which they built on struggles for Black dignity and citizenship that go back, but that also had their own patriarchal, at times heteronormative, discriminatory um, aspects to them. So I think we've seen huge progress there. And even when we think about the backlash uh, in terms of um, critical race theory and a backlash against teaching Black history, part of the reason we've seen that backlash is because in 2020, you had 25 million people out in the streets and people were interested, including white people and white kids and um, Latinx folks and AAPI and indigenous folks were more interested in American history and finding out about their place in that history, but also black people's place in that history than ever before. And certainly the catalyst here was BLM, but also the 1619 project. And so the the backlash against that is based on the fact that um, Reconstructionists were actually starting to win the narrative war uh, for the soul of America because so much, and I talk about this in the book, our reality is based on stories that we tell each other and that we tell ourselves about us as a nation. So if we tell the story of the lost cause and tell a story based on lies of American exceptionalism that sanitize, that don't talk about what happened to indigenous people, that don't talk about Japanese internment camps or uh, anti-Semitism or slavery and anti-Black racism, that doesn't talk about sexism and misogyny and queer phobia, we are going to produce outcomes based on that story. Hmm. And if we tell a different story that looks at both the tragedy and the triumph. Martin Luther King Jr. called it a bitter but beautiful struggle. We're going to get those outcomes. So I'm really convinced that so much of what we faced is based on what are the stories we are telling ourselves? What are the stories we are teaching our children? What are the stories that either acknowledge um, the dehumanization while at the same time acknowledging those who struggled against it? Right. What does it do if we tell a different story about American history where instead of having uh, monuments to Confederate white supremacists who murdered so many people, we have monuments to white and black abolitionists and we have monuments to indigenous environmental activists and we have monuments to Asian American Pacific Islanders who helped build up this country, but then were marginalized and beaten, um, and even into the 21st century are being brutalized and killed because of their race, right? And that's where I start the book with the epigraph that I'd love to read by sure. W.E. Um, E.B. Du Bois. And Du Bois says it much better than me because <laughs> he's, he's a brilliant and he's a genius, but he says in Black Reconstruction, here was a land of poignant beauty, streaked with hate and blood and shame, where God was worshipped wildly, where human beings were bought and sold, and where even in the 20th century, men are burned alive. Wow. Um, well, first, let me remind listeners that we are hearing Peniel Joseph's narrative, his 
story of the third reconstruction, America's struggle for racial justice in the 21st century. And I am struck by you saying the importance of the narrative and the narrative war. And I, I know you've written that, that perhaps Biden's biggest challenge during his presidency has been an inability to win the narrative wars and shape the public's conception of the state of our union. What do you think is the ac- accurate narrative? I, I mean, I know you have a whole book about it, but I guess if you were to boil it down that you want people to walk away with for this period that we are living in right now, how would you distill it? Well, I think it's a narrative of a struggle for multiracial democracy. I think in many ways, this has always been Black-led and Black women have been um, co-architects of this movement, but there's also a wide uh, coalitional politics. I think we overuse the word ally. I'm coming from a, a labor household. My mom was part mm. of SCIU 1199, Mount Sinai Hospital, for over 40 years. And I want folks who are in solidarity with my struggle. Uh, I started on picket lines in elementary school in New York City, and people stood in solidarity shoulder to shoulder. So this was more than allyship. It was not performance-based. It was real. And, and actual. So we've also had coalitions with um, our Latinx uh, sisters and brothers. We've had coalitions with our indigenous sisters and brothers. We've had coalitions with AAPI and, and white folks as well, right? And so I think this is a time where at our best, we should be talking about both the bitter and the beauty. So we have to talk about police brutality. We have to talk about mass incarceration. But we also have to talk about those who have faced uh, law enforcement violence, those people who are doing heroic work like Mariam Kaba, like Brian Stevenson, to, to end that fact. We have to talk about the way in which, even in the face of a pandemic that was disproportionately impacting Black people and people of color on Native American reservations in Queens, New York, where I'm from, um, people in Mississippi, Alabama, there were people who were doing heroic frontline work, a lot of times people of color, to try to stem that tide and try to save people, including my brother, who's an ER doctor. So we have to talk about the entirety of our story. And I think if we tell that entire story, we are stronger as a nation. And the fear and anxiety that we have when we invent boogeymen like critical race theory, it is so insidious because the more fearful and anxious we are, the more liable we're to commit violence against each other, to continue to perpetuate lies and marginalize these communities that have been um, really uh, uh, oppressed for so long in the United States. What I talk about in the book even though it's looking at black folks, Reconstruction is always about American democracy. When we think about the Reconstruction Amendments, Mina, of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, that went on to help everyone, including people who have immigrant backgrounds. Because before Reconstruction and before black people, 200,000, fight in the Civil War, there is no birthright citizenship. There are no voting rights except for white men. Right. Um, There is no abolition of slavery, although the 13th Amendment, like Ava DuVernay and others have taught us, Ruthie Gilmore, Angela Davis, so many others, Talitha LaFleur, so so many others have taught us um, 
except in case of criminal punishment. So as soon as you get the 13th Amendment, you get convict lease systems and you get systems of fines and fees that continue in the United States until this day. But the 14th Amendment, birthright citizenship, equal protection clause, those have helped so many non-Black actors, right? And the 15th Amendment, voting rights, initially for Black men in 1870, and they're not going to be able to enjoy that for too long. By 1920, white women, and by 1965, black, uh, black women as well. So we have to tell that story. And remember, it's Black politicians during Reconstruction who invent the public school system, the public education system. They're the ones who, in places like South Carolina, and I've got the quote from Thomas Miller saying, we were eight years in power, and we reconstructed the whole state. We built new bridges, new levees. We created a public school system. We created, they created anti-poverty health, uh, efforts in hospitals. And then they were, they were driven out of power in the state that they helped reform. That's the story of America, right? And so telling that story doesn't somehow make us weaker. Telling the story actually makes us all stronger and can provide a context for consensus so we can actually create a different future for ourselves. Well, Lottie or Lady writes, if the third reconstruction is sort of a period beginning with something like Obama getting elected and this right wing fascist movement today is the backlash, is there something we can learn from previous reconstruction periods like hope that democracy or justice will prevail? I mean, that is essentially what you did, right? You talk about how in the moment you found solace by looking to history in the first reconstruction era, uh, the second reconstruction era with the civil rights movement and and if it's okay with you, I wonder um, if I could actually play a clip from Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream speech, which, of course, is one of the major touch points, a, a high point um, in that second Reconstruction period. Let's listen. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time <laughs> to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time <laughs> to make justice a reality for all of God's children. I partly wanted to play that um, I mean, I'd love to get your reaction to it if you want to give one, but also because you wrote something that really struck me where you said that Trump's victory shattered the national consensus forged in the civil rights movement, which helped to launch a new era of voter suppression using tactics that recalled two earlier periods of Reconstruction. That basically you were saying before Trump, figures as disparate as Martin Luther King and Richard Nixon and Michelle Obama and Ronald Reagan basically all express support and fidelity to the civil rights movement. Absolutely. Trump is a game changer for all of us. And and it's not just Trump. What, what Trump does is tap into those redemptionist impulses that have been around for, you know, over 150 years. I think in terms of briefly what King is saying, King is extraordinary. And that speech is part of why Reconstructionists win the narrative war during the second Reconstruction. Because what King does is imbue 
the struggle for Black citizenship and dignity with a kind of patriotism in a successful way. He's not the first person to try this. Frederick Douglass tried in the 19th century. King and the movement, Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer saying, is this America at the 1964 Democratic uh, Convention Credentials Committee testimony? So many others um, really managed to change the story. So here's the thing, Mina. Once you change the national story, results follow, right? Once you get a story that says, and again, we're, we're not here yet, but once you get a story, when you think about something like happened in Tulsa or Japanese internment, if, you, if we stop telling ourselves, man, how could we do that to them? And instead we change the language and say, how could we have done that to us? Because that is ourselves, right? We change the story and we're gonna have different policy debates. We're going to have different ways of thinking about shaping the law and legislation. We're going to treat each other differently. We're going to have different institutions and structures. So much of the way in which our reality is configured, it's based on a story we tell ourselves. The reason why we have two million people in prison, Mina, is we've told ourselves a story about black criminality for over 150 years that we believe, right? And that that story means that, look, the only way we can be safe Black people are 12% of the population. They are 38% of the prisoners. The only way we can be safe is by locking up black people, right? So even when Obama was elected president, right, his vision of American exceptionalism still is trafficking in the politics of respectability, right? So he's president. He has Harvard and, 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 and Columbia, stuff that most of us are never going to have, white, black, or whatever, right? And, and, but he doesn't have the baggy pants. But again, he listens to hip-hop when he needs to, to play it cool, and he, he, he mimics Al Green when he needs to perform a certain kind of blackness. But the rest of us out here are dying in the streets. And that's what Black Lives Matter was saying. Help us too, Mr. President. We are talking with Peniel Joseph, professor and historian, who says the moment Obama was elected marked the beginning of what he calls America's third reconstruction. We're talking about what that means to America, to Joseph, to all of us. And you can share your thoughts by calling 866-733-6786, posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or emailing forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Peniel Joseph, who's written a book 
called The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. The professor and historian at University of Texas at Austin tells us that we are living through a third reconstruction that is marked by both racial progress and backlash, but that we are progressing. Do you agree? The listener writes, it feels like the Supreme Court wants to give states the right to make more and more decisions. And we've been seeing how states have curtailed voting rights, especially in the South. As someone who lives in Texas, does the guest feel that states will curtail that he is talking about? Texas feels like a state that is rolling back rights. What will cur- oh, no, curtail absolutely. this third reconstruction, Peniel? I absolutely agree with um, this idea. We're, we're facing huge juxtapositions, right? So on this, on this, the same year that we get the first black woman as an associate on the Supreme Court, yes. we have um, massive voter suppression. Uh, we have uh, Roe v. Wade is overturned, and we have um, really unconstitutional legislation in states like Florida, Texas, and Virginia that are telling teachers that they have no right to teach uh, American history, right? So these things happen simultaneously, and I think that's what a lot of people don't comprehend. So even when we had the March on Washington, a couple of months later, um, four black girls, uh, really a month later, September uh, uh, 15th, 1963, are killed at the 16th Street Baptist Church. So these things happen Uh, in juxtaposition. So I would say where you've seen the progress is all the legislation that has been passed under the Biden administration would not have been passed, but for organizers, reconstructionist organizers in 2020, who galvanized a whole movement. And the reason why Obama, um, Biden, who was Obama's vice president, could win Biden-Harris 81 to 74 million is because of that movement. Right. So in a way, a lot of folks want to say, hey, what has BLM accomplished? Well, they accomplished that the entire Biden presidency is based on the foment that happened because of 2020. So all that legislation and all those um, executive orders where presidents talking about equity, uh, having the first uh, black woman vice president, All that is based on the way in which that movement, at least in 2020, did win that narrative war. Last two years, not so much. Not so much. And I think that's where Biden and and even the vice president, the inability to explain this and explain what's happening. I think Biden did a good job with that recent speech talking about democracy under existential threat. But I think over the last two years, we've needed more of that because the way in which politics works at the national level You need to tell your story. And if you don't tell your story in a way that is compelling, but also that has a kind of brevity and passion and power to it, believe me, the other side is going to tell their story, right? And so if you lose that narrative war, you're going to lose really basically everything. So narrative and the narrative power of what does American democracy mean, that's that's the ball game. And so if you lose that that battle and you allow somebody else's story to take over, then you're in serious trouble. Let me go to caller Thomas in Los Gatos. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Mina. Uh, great show. And thanks for taking my call. It's been a really a top-notch uh, hour this hour, uh, something for the archives. Uh, I think uh, the, the worst comment ever made by a president since the Civil War 
was the comment uh, President Trump made a few years ago when he warned liberals, I'm sure he meant Black Lives Matter, uh, that he was backed by uh, the military, the police, and bikers for Trump. In other words, he had massive firepower. He didn't say he was backed by the prison union, so he wasn't talking about you know locking up even more black people, but actually murdering black people in general and, and any of their liberal uh, you know uh, sympathizers. So I was wondering, Neil, what, what you thought of that comment, and is uh, it as dangerous as I think it is? Thanks, Thomas. Well, yes. I mean, absolutely. I think that's a dangerous comment. The comment after Charlottesville saying there's good people on both sides. You know, let, let's say it. I mean, Trump was a representation, a, sim, a symbol of, of of white supremacy and the white redeemer South of the 19th century. Um, that was the first time since Andrew Johnson uh that such a president had taken over federal power. And in certain ways, he was more dangerous than Andrew Johnson because we had more federal power 150 years later than Andrew Johnson had, right? And so when we think about um, Trump, however, I think we have to, sometimes we give him too much power because he was able to wield redemptionist sentiments that are on the ground, on the grassroots that took over a whole political party in terms of the GOP and the Republican Party. So he's not a one-man gang in that sense. He becomes becomes the instrument of this kind of um, white resentment and grievance that Obama's presidency paradoxically amplified. And I say paradoxically because in certain ways, Obama was sort of the perfect black representative to be the face of American democracy globally, and he had the popularity to prove it. But in other ways, he really inspired huge white anxiety and fear, even among a portion of the white population that voted for him. Because Obama's brilliance meant in some ways a kind of white obsolescence if you think about access as a zero-sum game, that you're not going to have the same kind of white access and privilege if there is no more systemic and structural and institutional racism. So he, he inspires a lot of grief, and that's why you get MAGA, Make America Great Again, this idea of a time machine. Let's go back to a time where there could not be a President Obama. And black people, even those who had high character and high intelligence, knew their place. And there was a limit to what they would request and ask for and actually achieve. Well, let me go next to caller Henry in Santa Clara. Hi, Henry. Hello there. Can you hear me okay? I can. Go right ahead. Uh, Thank you. Excellent program. I would just like uh, the guests to comment. To me, it seems often that uh, the issues of economic class, employers, employees, the fact that slavery is rooted in capitalism, that fascism grows out of capitalism, the failure of this country to provide even health care for all or some sort of minimum guaranteed income in the face of our immense wealth. Um, I would just like to hear the professor's comment, you know, along the lines of uh, things that Richard Wolff or Noam Chomsky have to say. What do you think, Peniel Joseph? Well, I think that race and class are um, intimately tied and connected. So I think sometimes what we do is we um, disaggregate, right? And we we turn, uh, we just say, you know, everything's a class problem, right? I think everything, whether it's class or gender or sexual orientation, citizenship, ability status is lived throughout, is lived through race in our society because we are a racialized society. So even capitalism in our country, 
Um, sometimes scholars use the term racial capitalism. I would use the term racist capitalism in the sense that um, our capitalist institutions are not neutral. So our banking policy, our financial policies, how we treat Wall Street um, are not neutral. They've always been based on race. And that's how come when we think about wealth disparities in the United States, it's certainly connected to slavery and also the world we build after. So I would say that these things are um, interconnected and linked, but you always have to connect it with uh, with race. And it's not something that we could just disaggregate and say, oh, if we had some kind of... And sometimes the Bernie Sanders folks, the Bernie bros uh, articulate this, you know, if we, if we just uh, focus on class, we're all going to be good. But that doesn't end the racism. That's the whole thing. It doesn't end the racism, right? So the reason why black people are disproportionately overrepresented in every negative social economic indicator, including health equity, wealth equity, incarceration, um, public school education, residential, whose kids have asthma and whose don't um, in terms of environmental injustice, and underrepresented in all positive social economic indicators it's race and class, right? It's race and class. And then when we add gender, we'd see that black women make less, have less wealth, um, are more disproportionately going to be heads of households living below the federally established poverty line, all these different things. So you've got to always tie those two things together because our class identities, our gender identities, our sexual orientations, they're all lived through race because these structures, right, whether it's human health and human services, whether it's the military, which just finally fa got the first four-star black uh, uh, Marine, you know, in, in, in history, it's all lived through race because these structures and these institutions, which are just really people like us, they look at us and identify us and treat us based on race. They find out about our class origin and all this other stuff later, but race becomes that that unifying factor, um, unfortunately. And we have to confront that history if we're ever to change it. Mm. Thanks for the call, Henry. Let me go to Michelle in Oakland. Hi, Michelle. Hi, good morning. Uh, thank you, Professor, for bringing to light all these issues and for your well-written book. find out about our class. Um, my comment has mostly... Uh, what's happening at the humanitarian crisis south of the border in Tijuana, also with child separation that's still um, being enacted. I think Biden was very performative in a lot of what he uh, proposed as president. Um, and I just think it's really an abomination to our nation that we continue to deny asylum seekers just based on their race and uh, what you think uh, can be done to re remedy this. Michelle, Thank you. Well, I think the the border crisis is um, is a huge part of this. I think one of the great things that Black Lives Matter did was think about immigration panoramically. So think about immigration vis-a-vis -vis Mexico and Central America and Latin America and Spanish uh, speakers, but also think about immigration vis-a-vis -vis the Caribbean and vis-a-vis -vis West Africa. Uh, one example is the United States' um, mistreatment and disparate treatment of Haitian refugees versus Cuban refugees, right? Both of them are fleeing uh, authoritarian regimes, um, fleeing uh, hunger and want, 
but one gets special status, which is the Cubans, um, and the other uh, gets marginalized. And you had a president of the United States say that Haiti and these African countries, he used um, a slur to describe them. So I do think that it is a crisis that's happening at the border. I think immigration is a crisis. You know, uh, when we when President Obama was president, he ended up deporting a massive amount between 2009 and 2013 to try to get this immigration deal that senators agreed to, Republican senators agreed to the so-called Gang of Seven, including Marco Rubio of Florida. But then uh, Paul Ryan in the House killed that. So the deal didn't happen. Yet he had been part of a regime, uh, President Obama, uh, that was very, very excessive in terms of its mistreatment of immigrants so that he could get this deal, right? Um, President Trump furthered that. And when you think about ICE and detention and the separation of children from families, this could only happen to brown and black people. And not all the people who are separated are just brown folks. Some of these folks are from the Caribbean. Some of them are from West Africa. Some of them are just Afro um, Latinx people, people who are from Central America, from Mexico, from Latin America, who are who are who are darker skinned, and some who identify prou- proudly as Afro Latinx, and others who 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 don't. But no, that is a big part of our situation now. And when we think about redemptionist impulses, they've always been not just anti-black racist and anti-Semitic, but they've also been anti-immigrant. They've been anti-Muslim. So the othering of folks down at the border continues uh, that push. And I think the Biden administration has tried to stand some ground uh, on that issue. Benil Joseph is professor of history and founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the University of Texas at Austin. His book is The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The listener writes, what does the third reconstruction mean for future black presidential candidates like Kamala Harris? Will they be more likely to be successful or less successful? I think it depends on coalitions and coalition politics. That's where this idea of solidarity comes through. I think in 2020, there was such an existential threat to democracy that a lot of folks, including black folks who picked him in South Carolina, wanted Joe Biden and they wanted a a white representative because they felt that would be more palatable. We didn't have, we in 2020, it wasn't sort of the feel-good days of 2008 with Obama, where we felt excited about Obama, even in the midst of two wars and the Great Recession. Um, so I think the future, it's going to be based on what kind of, really what kind of story we are telling about the state of American democracy. And can we have a black representative, whether that's Kamala Harris um, or or somebody else tell a compelling enough story because Obama did. He told a very compelling story in 2008. It just wasn't the entirety of the story, and th- that's why people were so, including himself, caught by surprise by the Tea Party and the Birther movement. Right, the Birther movement is the most um, redemptionist movement in American history because. This whole idea of attacking black citizenship is what the Redeemer South is about, that we were always going to be unfit for citizenship. We were never true Americans. We are always unpatriotic, even as we fight in every single war. And the fact that Obama 
the, the, the person who articulated that becomes the next president showed you that Obama needed to tell us a fuller story even in 2008. I think the American people can handle the fuller story. I'm in a minority there, but that, that fuller story is what's required for us to move ahead. What ends Reconstruction periods? You, you say the first two ended prematurely, wrecked by anti-Black violence, white backlash, and the creation of more sophisticated forms of racial segregation, exploitation, and death. It sounds very much like what we're in right now. And we only have two, two minutes or so left, Professor. But I just want to ask you that because also if you're saying this is a period of racial progress, progressing to what? We see what was detrimental and lost and not achieved, though there was a lot of achievement after, in the first Reconstruction. We see what was achieved and then not in the second, right? What do you see as the progress to what, in addition to the fact that you're saying racial progress is being made in this volatile time, to what? I think historically Reconstructions have ended with violence, 1898, Wilmington, North Carolina, and the white coup there. Um, and then certainly the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., even though the, the burning embers of progress continue. Mm -hmm. I think I don't end this Reconstruction period with the January 6th assault. Yeah. And I think the progress that we are trying to make, and you played, Mina, the, the tape of King, is towards what Dr. King called the beloved community, a community that is free of racial and economic injustice, free of militarism, materialism, racism. I think the progress that we've seen is on several fronts. I think we've narratively, in terms of these narrative wars and the story we tell, we have seen of different cast of characters, beginning with uh, black women like Nicole Hannah-Jones and Tamika Mallory and Stacey Abrams telling us a different, more expansive version right. of American democracy. For it. Yeah. And, and being acknowledged for it, right? And so I think what we're driving towards is a society, and the gentleman earlier talked about, why don't we have health care? And Heather, McGree has, Heather McGee has the great book, The Sum of Us, which talks about why don't we have nice things? We don't have nice things like health care and great education because of not just racism, but redemptionism, and that we cling to that story of redemptionism and white supremacy at the detriment of us all. And so that's what I talk about. What, what we're trying to do is have a reconstructionist narrative and that story be the story that creates our reality with each other. That's an expansive story. It includes all people of color. It includes white people. The only thing it doesn't include is those people who want to destroy instead of build. Daniel Joseph, thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed our conversation. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.